Welcome back to Let's Learn Something. I'm your host, Paul McTavish. Today, we are extending our examination of student voice to take a closer look at what this looks like in a classroom. Originally, I intended to get three perspectives on what this looks like in the classroom and create an episode out of those conversations. But, well, I got talking, and what I learned from our guests was too good to cut down. So we've kept the conversation as standalone episodes. We are releasing two episodes simultaneously today, one focused on teaching younger students and one focusing on teaching middle years in high school. And the third and final episode of our student voice series will be released shortly after. This conversation you're about to hear is with Jennifer Mason and is focused on working with younger students. Jen is a sector facilitator with PSSD and a pre-K teacher at Lord Asquith School. She leads a lot of PD for both our school division and beyond and has a wealth of experience in a number of areas. Specifically, I've had the good fortune to chat with her about early years education and assessment. In this conversation though, I got to ask her about her thoughts on working with young students, power dynamics, the importance of families, and more. So I'm super excited to share this conversation with you. So let's learn something about student voice and teaching young children with Jennifer Mason. Jen Mason, it is great to get to chat with you today. Um, as you know, uh, we're going to chat a little bit about student voice. I think you bring uh, a really unique perspective because of who you work with. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about um, which kiddos you primarily get to work with during the day? So I'm fortunate to work with pre-kindergarten at Lord Asquith School, Monday through Thursday mornings, and they are three and four years old. So they have a unique voice to be heard for sure. And I love listening to everything they have to say, even if um, th- not everyone always wants to hear what they have to say, I guess. so. <laughs> That's awesome. You should come to our house. We have a four-year-old and man, does he talk a lot. So <laughs> you do really well at our house, I think. <laughs> I think it's um, easier when it's not your own kids not yeah. going to lie. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think that's very true. I'm much more patient at work, that's for sure. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, so with kids that young, I, I wouldn't think the issue is getting them to chat. As I said, our our kiddos are pretty pretty loud. But I mean, I guess there's probably some too who haven't found their voice yet and stuff like that. So what does that look like for early years, like the EYE kiddos? What does that look like when you think about student voice? Yeah, it's interesting. Like personality definitely definitely takes play. Um, Some children come to school just like ready to go, ready to talk, ready to tell you their life story. And, you know, those can be any child anywhere on the spectrum. But then at the same time, there's those children that come and just kind of want to sit in the corner and do their own thing and not interact. And so it's trying to bridge the gap between those two in allowing that child that has a lot to say and wants to say it hold back sometimes to let, you know, those softer children have that opportunity too. And so sometimes we do things intentionally to allow for that, whether that's like a sharing circle, whether that's um, projecting a photo of some play or a video of some play and letting a child speak to that. So giving them that opportunity to talk. And then sometimes it's pairing that soft child with that maybe more, we call them a loud child. Um, Yeah just to show them like, wow, she doesn't really want to talk. Maybe like I should give her a chance to talk and like coaching them through those situations because not everyone has the confidence and some need to realize that we do need to take turns in talking. So the sharing circle then, if you just go back to that for a second, what specifically do you put in place so that the kids whose voices that uh, 
maybe struggle to get heard so that they mm. do get heard? Yeah, when we start sharing circle, it's a traditional um, First Nation sharing circle. And so we have our talking stick and we talk about, you know, the rules and parameters around a sharing circle. And so unless you have the stick, you aren't speaking. But we also want to honor those quiet children that maybe aren't ready and don't have the feeling um, to be able to share. And so we tell them you can pass. And so we often see at the beginning of the year about half of the children passing. And so we model that too as adults. We will pass sometimes just to make sure they know that's okay. We don't always have to share. But then we also model, sometimes I might say, you know, I was feeling nervous about telling everyone this today, but I really wanted to tell everyone. So I'm going to be brave today. Yeah. And so we model every kind of child we can in the room to show that it doesn't matter where your voice lies. Your voice is important, even if it's just staying inside of you today. Maybe one day it will come out. I think over time, as they start to see that our circle is safe and that everyone's ideas are listened to and valued, um, they start to join in, which is really exciting. Like the first day a child joins in a sharing circle that hasn't, we definitely document that and share it with their family because it's so important to show that they're becoming a contributor within our community. That's amazing. So you don't really have to like call them out or like provide a prompt for them kind of thing, just being respectful and just like letting that time, like you're kind of playing a long game, I guess, right? Is that, would that be fair to say? Yeah. And with sharing circle for sure. But then there's other strategies we use too, like projecting a photo um, that I usually find brings out the quiet children faster than a sharing hmm. circle would because they have something to kind of rely on. And I think their attention isn't on them. Everyone's looking up at that photo or that video and I'll say to them, do you want to share today? And they might say no. And so I'll say, can I share for what you did? And so they'll usually tell me yes, and I'll share what they did. And I'll be like, you know, I think I forgot some parts. Did I forget anything for you? And it kind of draws them in. I know it's almost a little bit of trickery, but I'm just trying to find a way to bring them out. And I find that that picture share really works. Another one we often do is artifact share. They actually bring an artifact from their play. And it can be something they made or just something they really enjoyed, but bring it over and tell us about it. And I'll intentionally go around the room to those quiet children and say, I really like what you were doing with this today. Do you want to bring it to sharing time? And you can share about that artifact. And usually in that moment, they'll say yes, because it's just them and I. And they're like, yeah. oh, yeah, Miss Mason, love you. We're, you're safe. Okay. And then when they come to the circle, sometimes they're like, whoa, no, I can't do this. And so I'll say, you know, I'll sit with you and we'll do it together. And like, can you tell them the name of this? Because I don't remember. Or can you tell me what you did with it? Because I actually didn't see for sure. And so I'm just trying to pull it out and trying to make it feel comfortable for them. And I think sometimes having those pictures or those videos or those physical items makes them feel like it's not necessarily about them. It's about something outside of them. Yeah. So the, So just so I'm clear, so the picture that you're sharing, it's something related to that kiddo then, right? Like it's not just like a random, yeah. <laughs> They're not no. on the spot to, <laughs> to make a connection. No, I mean, I know we might do that sometimes in like middle years with poetry, like yeah. what would you do? But no, um, I think that would be really nerve wracking for a lot of those quiet children. Yeah, totally. And it's kind of neat too, like I just, you're making the connection for me about like, you're planting some seeds early about with those kids before the, the moment comes. And I think about like, the work of Peter Liliadal and like his math stuff where it's like, you're going around and planting seeds so that you can come back to those. When those plants have grown later, you can kind of harvest them. So I think that's really, really neat. And the other thing that I really like about what you said, um, 
just that idea of like the artifact share or even the talking stick, like that's super portable. You don't need to be in the classroom to do that, right? Like you can be anywhere. And I know you, as we were chatting just before we started recording, like you guys spend a lot of time outside, right? So that that's a pretty flexible strategy. It is. And it can be used with any grade, right? It doesn't matter. Like we have reluctant voices in any grade in this school. Yeah. And I can think of those children. And I think it is when you find something that they really love. I can think of a grade three student. They don't want to talk in school at all. They started corn incorporated out in the field and they sell corn at recess. <laughs> and like they will talk about that nonstop. But if you ask them about to share their schoolwork, they didn't want to. But it's something they have a connection to. So they really want to talk about it and share about it. Do you find that just the act of like gaining confidence or gaining some agency through sharing like about something they like helps later on when it might be something where it's like you're asking for some school specific for lack of a better term or like learning specific for lack of a better term um, that because they've had that other experience sharing about something maybe they're passionate about they're they're willing to share or am I just am I making a connection that isn't there <laughs> no you totally are making a connection that is there and I'm fortunate in my school because I start with them in pre-k and I often you know because they teach often release classes or whatever um, I get to see them in kindergarten grade one grade two grade three and it is it's amazing to see like I think of one little gal in grade three when she's in pre-k she would never talk and you know towards the end of the year she was starting to share those seeds and now in that room she's the first one with her hand up and she might not have always the correct academic answer, but she has the confidence to be willing to try. And I think that's the other thing that that creates. It creates an empathetic community. So those children in that group, because we're a small school, we are with the same group every year kind of thing. Yeah. And it creates that community of like, we know that child as a learner. We know that person as our friend. We know when they feel comfortable and maybe when they feel scared and we know how to support them. And we talk up, we have those conversations in pre-K, you know, I'm a friend that maybe I'm a bit shy to share and that's okay. How can we support that friend that's shy? Let's not look at them today. Let's, maybe if we look somewhere else, they'll be ready to share. You know, today maybe we can look at them when they're ready to share. So it's just building that community and awareness of the people around us. And so as we grow and learn together over the years, it's amazing to see the growth that these kids have with one another not just within themselves, just being able to support one another. Yeah, that's brilliant. Like, and I think that's the, if you think about like, why does student voice matter? And it's like the development of the individual, the development of their competencies and who they are and stuff like their identity, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. That's pretty amazing. If we build off that track, is that the reason student voice is important? Or are there other nuances to it? Or like when you, I guess the question is, when you think about student voice, like, why does it matter? Like, why does it matter when we, when we think about young kids if we allow them to express their voice or help to help them find their voice and stuff like that why do you think that's important yeah I always I think of like the holistic wheel from early learning focusing on a whole child and I think often when we think of school we think of more of the traditional skills you know ABCs and one two threes yeah. those things are great and they're important of course they're important but I think we often forget that in our society now, we have a phone, we can Google whatever we need right away. And I mean, we should have the skills to like have knowledge as well, but we do have that ability. And I think we often have to remember that we also need the skills to be an empathetic um, and contributing member in society. And I think that's what early learning is really about, just trying to build the person we wanna be and see in the world later on. And I think, Focusing on that social emotional learning 
is the key to that and giving them a voice. I mean, I tell the kids like, you are just as important as us. We are all here and learning together. Some days you're the teacher, some days I'm the teacher, you know, really showing them that we are in the same playing field. It so happens that our daycare person in town's name is Jen. And so often they'll be like, Jen. And then they're like, Ooh. and I'm like, oh, that's okay. That's my name too. They're like, but are we even allowed to call you that? Well, that's my name. Of course you can call me. You know, I always try to think of power instances and I don't want to be power over those children because I'm not like they know more than I do most of the time. So yeah. why should I hold power over their, them and their voice? Yeah, that's very interesting. So, and I guess that kind of leads to my next question about like, when you think about like how you interact in that room to create that culture, what are you, what are you being intentional about? You know, if I think back over my career, when I started teaching, this wasn't my way of being at all. I was very power on and do your job and sit down and do the ABCs and one, two, threes. And when I think back to that time, the children were really smart and they knew their ABCs and one, two, threes. But I don't believe it was joyful, and I don't believe we had the best relationship we could have had. Not that we didn't have a relationship, but not the best one we could have had. And I think I went to a conference with Curtis and Carter, and they talked about the idea of power on, and it just, like, hit me. Like, oh, my gosh, that is me. (laughs) Um, It was kind of devastating. And so I started kind of just catching myself and thinking every day am I in a power on moment? I don't want to be there. How can I change this so that it's better for them and me and so that we're both getting what we need. And so I think making that shift and that we are equals was hard and it took time. But now the relationship we have and the places we can go together are far greater than what they were when I was like, do your job, sit down. Now it's like, I always think of this one little guy. He was like, wandering off outside and I'm like too far too far and he's just like you don't understand and I'm like okay tell me what don't I understand he's like I found a mushroom patch I'm like yeah okay you're right I don't understand power on was about to come out and I need to get rid of it because we would have lost out on that experience um so I think checking yourself is definitely a skill you need to have and I think I always ask myself is am I being power on because it's a safety reason or am I being power on just to have power over a little person to feel uncomfortable yourself almost right yeah so unless it's for a safety reason I try to check it and that can be hard but I do try to check it so when you say that do you you mean like the language you use or the parameters you have or all like all all of it like the language I'm using with children I try to use open-ended language so instead of saying no I say why. I never tell a child no anymore. Um, I think I've had like two panic moments of safety where I had to like yell no, but that's life. But um, no, I, I try to ask them why and have them explain to me because honestly, children are really intelligent beings. They always have a purpose for what they're doing. And if they can tell me why and it's purposeful and I still think there's safety parameters around it that I need to look at, I ask them, is this a safe thing to do? Or is there a safe way we can do this? Because I want them to be able to do whatever it is they're wanting to explore because they have an like intent need for that. Um, And just even setting out the guidelines in a room, like I don't make the rules of our room. We make them together. Everything we do is co-generated, co-created. I get made fun of on our staff. I won't put my name on our door because I say it's not my room. It's actually the community's room. And so it doesn't belong to me. So I don't need my name on there. 
but yeah, I just want, I want this room to be our room, not my room. Um, that's another thing. Like there isn't an area in this room that a child's not allowed to touch anything or go to. Um, I just really want them to feel ownership. Another thing I think in living this way in the teacher world is you really need to know your curriculum. Mm. And I think if you don't, this is really hard to do. Okay. Um, when I started, I always document my learning. And when I started documenting the learning, um, I always put the curriculum outcomes so that I got to learn them. And as I learned them, I looked back and I kind of laughed at myself because I was like, yeah, sure, it covered that curricular outcome, but it also covered 50 others. So I think once I knew my curriculum, it was like, oh, in my head, we just checked off 15 things this morning. Perfect. I know we're like on track of doing something. Um, I think that was a big thing for me was learning the curriculum and knowing, being confident in it and seeing the curriculum living around me then in the children as they were playing and learning and knowing that I could go over to them as they were playing and confer with them and I could bump them along and scaffold them because I knew where they were going, but I knew what my also agenda is for their learning because I am responsible for their learning too. And so I knew what I could say or add in for them to be able to get to the place that I need them to be as an educator but in a way that they want to participate in a way that they feel is meaningful. That is really hard is I, I, I think I have a similar experience. Like I'm a phys ed major, but I was, I ended up doing like senior science to start with. And so I did not know the curriculum well at all. I was basically just, I borrowed notes from people and found an old uh, correspondence course and that kind of stuff. And that's what I based it off of. And I was really hesitant to like move away from those things because I didn't know it well enough to be able to like, take the interest of kids and weave that into what we were trying to do. And so I was pretty, it's pretty lockstep. It was like, no, I said, we do this. This is what we do. If you don't like it, see you in the hall in five minutes, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Right. But then once I got much more comfortable, you can see those connections there, but I don't, the thing is, it's like, it just takes time to like get to know those. I don't know if there's a shortcut. I don't, would you agree with that? I, I don't think there's a shortcut. I mean, yeah. unless you want to sit down every night for like five hours and just study it. But I don't know, that doesn't sound exciting to me either. I do. Yeah. I think it takes time. And something else I always do, because I do document the children's learning, when we've kind of finished like a big idea or a project or whatever, I will go back to that documentation and I'll kind of tear it apart in a way that I look at it and I wonder, what did I miss? What opportunities did I miss mm. in the moment? Because I was living in it and I couldn't necessarily see it then. But now looking back, oh, I wish I would have done this and I wish I would have done this and I could have added in this or we could have gone this way. And so it just makes me think of like, okay, think of more possibilities for next time that I can weave in. I, I think I understand what you're saying and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but can you give me an example of like something maybe you would start with and then some of the intentionality where you would like, um, say like, oh, if we did this, we're also covering this, this, and that. Like, can you think of something that would kind of make sense to help illuminate this? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm thinking of like in the fall, we were outside and we kind of just started like wandering into the cornfield. Um, mm -hmm. And so the kids actually started making up games. And so they named the games with like, we had corn toss, we had borlap, uh, we had ladder corn, like we had all these, yeah. They have yeah. interesting things, um, but we had all these things. And so then I was like, okay, well, how can I add math to this? So I was like, well, let's just always count how many we get in or how many sticks we pass or da, 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 da. So I'm like, okay, check. We got math. Um, so then it was like, oh, well, all of a sudden we wanted to have a corn stand, sell corn. Okay. So now we have this corn stand. We can like 
still practice counting because they call like every piece of money one. So, well, I have three monies today. Okay, great. You can get three corns because you have three monies for doing one-to-one -one correspondence. Looking back though, I'm like, oh, I could have had it in writing. Like you have to write down your, who you're selling corn to and like draw a picture of your corn in. You know, it's just like going back or like, oh, we could have made name tags for the people that worked at the corn store or yeah, okay. um, just like little things of like, how can I add in the curriculum but in a way that reaches the students' needs and yeah. interests. Yeah, no, totally. That makes sense. And but you can't you can't do that unless you kind of know the, the broad scope of what you're trying to accomplish, right? Yeah, you can't. And I mean, yeah, it just it does. It takes time. Like I even think of the kids were really into there was an old lady that swallowed a fly, those books. Yeah. There's like a huge series. There's every possible one under the sun. We have and two in our uh, bookshelf at home right now. <laughs> <laughs> I've got about 50 behind me. Um, <laughs> but like they were so into it. And so we just kept reading them and reading them and reading them all every day. And they would sit down and they'd read, read them with each other. And uh, all of a sudden one morning, I'm like, why am I not doing anything with this? And so it was like, you guys, do we want to write our own book? Mm. Like, why didn't I think of that like 20 of these ago? Because... <laughs> Yeah. I'm like, oh, these are getting kind of old for me. But it was like, then it was really exciting. Well, we're writing our own book. We're authors now. And we got to go home and tell our parents we're authors. And then, you know, we get to take the book home and show our families. We made a book in pre-K and we're authors and illustrators. And like, it's just like always, I feel you're always like one step behind almost. And I, I, was t I love when I work with new teachers. So like, oh, I can't wait for the day where it's just like, yes, I know what I'm doing. I'm like, when you get there, please tell me because yeah. I think I'm always one step behind and I'm looking back being like, oh, I missed it. Oh, I missed it. Yeah, totally. What I what I think is really fascinating about the, the age of kids that you work with is that their language skills are evolving as we all are. But like when I work with like high school kids, the thing that I loved about those guys is that they would come in and they might be really hot emotionally and you you could kind of calm them down. Once you got them calmed down, they could basically tell you what the problem was. They could tell you, I'm frustrated with this and I don't like that. And she said this and he did that. And Mr. So-and-so did such and such. And like they can, the narrative might not be correct, but they can give you a narrative of, of what, what they're thinking, why they're thinking it. My four-year-old at home will just, he'll say stuff and it, it is not in any way factually true or correct but he's just experiencing an emotion and so he's saying words to me right and it's like that's kind of the age of the kids you work with so i i wonder about like what your role is in interpreting or helping them shape what they say or like those types of things when they are experiencing those emotions like student voice i would imagine and maybe i'm wrong but i think it, it shows up differently in those younger kiddos and it would maybe in some of the older kiddos but i don't know what are your thoughts on that yeah, it, it is interesting. I mean, I think a lot of the time when kids come to us, they know maybe happy and sad and mad. Yeah. And, and it's like, okay, great, great. Um, but we have to extend that. And I think that's a big part of early learning is just looking at the emotional language and connecting it to um, actual circumstances. And it's funny, I think back to when I was a first year teacher, I'm like, okay, I'll read like the lonely book and we'll be good. We know what lonely is. And <laughs> yeah. I'm like, no, we don't know what lonely is because we read a lonely book. Um, so now we actually look at situations in the class. So as we're playing, like this morning, my kids have now set up a vet shop in our um, classroom. And nice. so they're playing in the vet clinic. And then one little girl was kind of left to the side and just kind of sitting there not doing anything. 
and it was about 15 minutes. And so I decided, Haley, are you okay? Mm, I don't know. And so I said, are you okay if I ask your friends to stop and talk to you? And so we did, we stopped, we talked to her and we asked her like, how are you feeling? And she couldn't find the words. And it was the fact that she was kind of lonely because she was feeling left out. Yeah. And I said, so I had to coach her through that. Like, so you're sitting here. Why are you sitting here? Well, no one's asked me to play. I'm like, did you ask anyone to play? Well, no, I'm not, I'm not brave enough. Okay. Mm. So hmm, I wonder if someone could be brave and ask Haley to play. And of course someone right away. Yeah, I can ask her. And <laughs> like, do you want to come play with us? And like, so I think friends, she was feeling lonely today and maybe left out. What do you guys think? And they're like, Oh, maybe. And she's like, I guess that's maybe what lonely is. I'm like, I think lonely is when we're alone, but we're with people and we want to feel better by being included. And she's like, maybe, yeah, maybe I was lonely. And then during sharing time, she was able to share that. Like, yeah, I felt lonely today. So I think examining those actual circumstances is really important for building um, that emotional language and understanding and just constantly talking about it. We constantly talk about our emotions and not only our emotions, our physical actions that are associated with those emotions, because hitting someone might actually be that they're sad or mad, not just mad. It might be that they're actually sad and they don't know how to express that properly. So we talk about the appropriate ways to express physically our emotions. But you're making me think too, just about like the competencies or the the skill that you need in order to like work with those kids to like, they're sending you signals, but they're not always like, they're not explicit, right? Like, and we've even talked before, I've had the, I've had the great opportunity to chat with you just about like documentation panels and how you're capturing stuff from kids. Um, not necessarily what they say, but what they draw or maybe a picture of what they're doing kind of stuff. And you're making decisions about like what their next steps might be based off of that. And it's not necessarily verbal. So I wonder just about like the voice that they have or the, the skill you need to have to like understand what the voice that they're expressing through their actions and not necessarily their words. Like, how do you, how do you go about thinking about that, I guess, or how do you, how do you develop that skill or that competency? Funny you bring that up. That's actually my professional goal this year, huh. uh, which some people think is interesting, but um, really focusing on listening. Um, I think often we listen to what's being spoken, but like, is that the true story of what's happening? And just like you said, children sometimes say things. It's like, okay, like, yeah, that's what you're saying, but that's not what I'm seeing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, so I'm working on listening and listening in many ways. And so I'm really taking the time to sit back and think about what is happening with this child in this moment. What is happening with this child in collective moments as I see them over time? And what connections am I making uh, um, for that child through those moments? So really observing and listening to both verbal and nonverbal cues that that child gives me and seeing what I can learn about that child from that. Um, that's kind of my goal this year because I feel, I often think I know a child and then all of a sudden I'll have a conversation with a parent and they will tell me something that I would have never thought to be true of their child. And then I sit back and I watch and I see it all of a sudden. Um, so I think sometimes we're just looking for, you know, some of those academic cues that we need to look for to be able to do our assessments and whatnot. Um, but parents are the first teachers. And so hearing their voice and 
taking that in and taking in their child and connecting those things with my observations and the listening that I do, I think gives me a more holistic um, view of that child. And it helps me learn what that child truly needs to be the best learner they can be and the methods that they want to use and need to use to be the best learner they can be. Yeah, that's fascinating. And you and that was kind of the next question I was just thinking about is like, well, where do parents fit into this, right? Because like, we've got these kids who are, who are not independent. Well, they are independent in some ways from their parents, but are largely dependent on their parents for a lot of stuff. And, and as you said, parents are the first teachers and know their kids best and know them in ways we never will. So how do parents fit into this idea of like helping their kids express their voice or helping you understand their kids so you can make good decisions to help move them forward and stuff like that like how does that all work for you yeah and I mean more difficult may right now with parents not being able to come into the building but I mean that's where things like electronic um, platforms are amazing like we use seesaw in our classroom and I communicate with parents constantly on seesaw I'll update them you know if I have a child that is maybe having more difficulty self-regulating or, um, you know, is having some separation anxiety. I'm constantly connecting with those families to be like, hey, here's what I saw today. What happened with you this morning before they got ready? How were they when they got home? Are we seeing any um, consistencies that create these behaviors or these challenges for your child? Um, Celebrating successes with the families, sharing what we're doing and learning about. And the biggest thing I've come to learn is just because you're a parent, it doesn't mean you know what your child needs developmentally. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, I am not an expert on children at all. Um, I cannot be the expert of someone's child, but I could be an expert of developmental milestones. I confidently say that. And so sharing those with families, I think is really important. And for both ways, often parents think their children are behind. And so when you show them developmental milestones, it's like, oh, my child's actually on track and I thought they were way behind and this made me feel better. Or on the flip side, you know, sometimes it's like, okay, this is an area we can work on. And I provide in Seesaw not only um, updates about what a child's doing, but updates for parents to learn about development. So like, hey, here are some things you can do at home. So for example, today I said, children often start experiencing scissors at age three or four and they can work towards those skills, but they won't actually master that skill until they're probably about six years old. And I think hearing things like that relieves parents because it's like, oh, I thought they should be a master in this already. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, showing them that this is what you can do at home to assist them and giving them those, I don't know, little tasks, not that they're tasks because they don't have to do them, but kind of tips and tricks of things they can be doing at home with their child if they're looking for them. Because I think there aren't a lot of places to look I think of my husband, Doug, he's like, I don't know, should Boston be doing this yet or not? I have no idea. And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, you know, well, he's not a teacher. He's a dad for the first time. He's just like, I have no comparison of this. So I have no idea if I should, what well, should I do for? Even, uh, even Claire and I, we're both teachers, uh, but we're both high school educated, like as in we teach high school kids or had taught high school kids. And so we've got five kids and yeah, what you're saying right now, just about like developmental milestones, I'm like, okay, I gotta write that down so they can use it. <laughs> <and, laughs> I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, that's yeah. super helpful. 
Or I think, yeah, when Boston's in grade six, I'm going to be like, yeah, I don't know. Should he be doing this? I have no idea. <laughs> what three and four and five-year-olds should be doing. Yeah. When does he get a cell phone? I don't know. <laughs> what does that happen? Yeah. So I think, I think yeah. um, making those relationships with parents, that was huge. And just finding ways to connect and sharing successes, sharing next steps, sharing t- like tips and tricks for things they can do at home um, and just resources. Like I have an EAL family that was basically like, where do I even take my child for like activities? Like, I have no idea. Where do I go? And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's like another thing. I feel like pre-K is almost like a catch-all for like health and social, like everything, right? We just have to kind of assist parents because there is nowhere for them to go sometimes. Yeah. Or they, or you're the one they trust, right? So it's like if you can help point them in, in a place that's really helpful, they're they're gonna they're gonna run with that, right? Totally. And I mean, I always say you can ask us for anything. It doesn't have to be school related. We constantly say that to families, and it's amazing they do. They reach out for anything. And I know, and you kind of touched on this earlier, but I know you really believe in like reciprocal relationships too, right? So I'm sure the stuff you get from parents helps you to like make way better decisions about how you're working with the kids, right? Oh my gosh, yes. Like sometimes the information parents decide to share with us is phenomenal um, or the experiences they've had or just even gifts of materials because like mm. our child loves this at home. Maybe you guys would love it at school yeah. um, or sharing food or recipes with us. There's just so many things that families can gift to us that make the experience better for all of us. Awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time, Jen. I really appreciate this. No problem. Well, that's our show for today, at least the early years part. I again want to thank Jen for taking time to have this conversation and helping us dig deeper into our craft. As mentioned earlier, there are two episodes released simultaneously this week. Check out the other episode for student voice ideas while working with middle years and high school students. In the meantime, if you have topics you'd like to see explored on the show, please send me an email at paul.mctavish at spiritsd.ca. Until next time, stay safe and take care.